Hello, this is Radio Free Europe, in the sense that it's free, it's about Europe, and it's sort of like radio. Welcome back to Romaniacs, the mutinous Brexit podcast. I'm here with two of my regular co-hosts, Ian Dunty, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian, how are you? Hello, very well. And Ross Taylor edits the LSE Brexit Vote blog and is research manager of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. Hi, Ross, how are you? I'm great. Really, really good week. <laughs> good. <laughs> After last week's Back to Basics Core Values edition, we're back to having special guests. Matthew Paris has been writing for The Times for 30 years now and also writes a column for The Spectator. Before that... Between 1979 and 1986, he was a Conservative MP for West Derbyshire. He presents great lives on Radio 4, appears regularly on political discussion shows, and was recently seen playing himself in the League of Gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to Romania. It's quite impressive when you read it out like that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, obviously, League of Gentlemen was the career highlight, oh, yes. wasn't it? <laughs> yes. I'm going to be the Grandma Moses of the acting profession. <laughs> I found my metier at last. Just as long as the role is Matthew Paris, you're there. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do it so well. <laughs> Um, like I said, you've been Times columnist for three decades. Do you still get the... Because um, it's not an easy job being columnist. And I wonder, do you still get the columnist jitters like, what am I going to write about this week? Or are you a, a well-oiled opinion machine by now? Oh, every week. Every week you, you get the jitters. Uh, it is um, a Wednesday now. I I'm not, don't know what I'm going to write about for Saturday. But whatever I decide now, I know that by Friday it'll look different. What What does happen, and this is not really a good thing, is that you... Gather confidence in yourself to churn out something that will do. And I know I can, so I'm not panicking that there's going to be a blank page. But that's not the same as churning out something that will do well. Mm. And that's what uh, gives me the jitters. And um, Brexit is, is sort of it's an oppressively dominant issue in British politics. And you obviously write about it uh, but fairly regularly. But do you, there's always something that you could write about. There's always substance for a Brexit column. Do you have to sort of ration yourself? Yes, but I don't know how to. Uh, <laughs> partly just because I am an addict. I, I, I've gone completely mad about this. We all have, haven't we? I mean, let's face it. It's not just the other side. We're all totally crazy. now, And I can't stop wanting to talk about it and think about it and react to it. Uh, on the other hand, well, the, the problem is that half my readers say, oh, no, not another column about Brexit. Can't you t talk about something else? And the other half get e incredibly excited about it. And I find that a column that I write about with the word Brexit in it gets about a thousand online responses, all the rest, two or three hundred. Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, we have noticed obviously doing this podcast, people are, there are enough people who have been driven crazy by it out there. Yeah, they're probably not the majority. <laughs> We'll be talking to Matthew throughout the show. We'll also be discussing Boris Johnson's Bridge Over the River Y, the latest antics from the long-running sitcom Mr. Farage's Boys, <laughs> and Dutch journalist Heert Mark's book In Europe. But first, here's Roz with some vital info. If you were listening last week, you'll have heard that we're doing the very first Romaniacs live show in London on Thursday the 22nd of February. To our amazement, it's sold out in only four days and we'll certainly be doing more shows in future. God knows whether I'll have the guts to do it again. But anyway, the best way to make sure you get tickets is to back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Patreon backers get first dibs on tickets plus smart Romaniacs t-shirts, mugs and bags. Find out more at romaniacs.com. And if you can't quite get enough of Ian and Dorian, this week there's Double the Dunt and Linsky in a special crossover edition with our sister podcast, Big Mouth. Ian and Dorian will be special guests on the Pop Culture Podcast talking about the latest in music and TV, plus their secret love. 
comic books. That's this week's Big Mouth, available first thing on Saturday. Say it like that. It's, it's like the overlap between Brexit nerdery and comics nerdery involves maybe six people. Two of them are in this room. That's this week's Big Mouth, available first thing on Saturday on Apple Podcasts and all your favourite podcast apps. Let's have a look at the Brexit news. We'll start with madcap schoolboy Boris Johnson's wizard scheme to build a 22-mile bridge across the Channel to France, thus reuniting us with the continent that Boris did his level best to sever us from. <laughs> In no way was this Victorian engineering project intended as a distraction from the grim slog of Brexit and its endless failure to match up to Johnson's optimistic predictions. But it's good news because Boris is excellent at bridges. <laughs> Inevitably, various lily-livered Ramonas, including the European Commission and Theresa May, poured cold water on Boris's boffo wheeze. The UK Chamber of Shipping tweeted laconically, building a huge concrete structure in the middle of the world's busiest shipping lane might come with some challenges. <laughs> but as journalist Matt Holhouse spotted, behind the bullshit was something very real, because Brexit could make Eurotunnel unworkable. The company said it would make our current cargo business, Eurodispatch, economically unviable. With uncertainty about customs checks and visas, no space for Eurotunnel to expand to accommodate new customs controls, and the possibility of a Brexit downturn, Britain's last great Victorian engineering project is at risk. So start, what's Johnson playing at? Well, I I was on the Select Committee on Transport uh, way back when we did an investigation into possible channel tunnel links before the tunnel was chosen, or possible crossing links. And and actually, there were plenty of proposals for bridges. They're perfectly workable. Uh, You you have to have a little tunnel where the ships are going to pass over or or a high bit where the ships can pass under. But there's nothing wrong with Boris's idea. It's just there isn't any money to do it, I think. What was, I mean, just, I don't want to go back into sort of dated engineering geekery, but what was the advantage of a tunnel over a bridge in you? Uh, mostly uh, costs and bad weather was a big thing. The bridge would have to be closed at quite quite a lot of the time. But it would, even that would be cheaper to build another tunnel yes. or build more tunnel than building a bridge. Yeah, I was in favour of actually building a, a road tunnel and a rail tunnel at the same time, but mm. I was in a minority. Mm. And how would it work in terms of joining up? Because as I remember, when they were joining up Eurotunnel, they had this great engineering feat to make sure the French engineers and the British engineers met in the middle. And I'm and obviously it's co-owned now, but how could how could that work? I mean, would that even work? Oh, these days, well, they just use their iPhones, couldn't they? You know exactly where you are. They, <laughs> uh, even in a fog, you'd, you'd end up at the right place. Without any signal, well, I suppose the bridge, yeah. yeah. That's actually one of my first TV memories, I think, is, is actually remembering the point where they found the hole and they sort of met each other in the middle mm. and had champagne or something, mm. which suddenly feels quite a sad, symbolic moment, <laughs> <laughs> which it didn't at the time. <clears throat> I'm not sure. I mean, there was a lot of talk on the day that it's this big, you know, everyone talks about the dead cat thing, which is this supposed Lindsay and Crosby strategy of, you know, you're in trouble over here. So you throw this very, you know, arresting image or, or colourful language or something like that on the other side. And everyone talks about that. Right? Anything else. Or in other words, the entirety of Donald Trump's career. Now, I don't see that that's really what's going on here. I don't think that there is this great strategic intelligence to the way that Boris conducts himself. No. I think he just, he just talks because he wants attention. At most of all, he wants attention. And he also just, you know, likes cultivating the sort of media context. You saw him do it again with the NHS, spanked around at the cabinet table. But it doesn't matter because he's on the front page of a bunch of newspapers. He's talked about on a bunch of radio shows. That's what he cares about. I don't think it's in- impressive strategic intelligence at all. I just think it's his endless chuntering nihilism and nothing else. Well, well he's a Johnson. 
they're all like that. <laughs> You're still talking about the family, or the <laughs> well, there was that theory that it was to distract from uh, Macron's statement, but there's always something to distract from. I mean, when is there not some bad news from Brexit that no you might one, potentially want to distract from? Anyway, it didn't matter because the coverage of the Macron statement was so completely misleading. I mean, the BBC lead was, oh, he's going to give us a special deal, which really was not actually what he was saying. And even despite that, when he's basically saying that you're not going to get any financials, especially on financial services, we've known that they've been saying that for over a year now. It doesn't make any difference because the people that don't want to hear it don't hear it. And that includes, you know, emotionally normal people who aren't paying attention to this on a day-to-day basis. So is Boris Johnson unsackable? He... Oh, we are. No. <laughs> no, I, I think he's come a bit close to the line this this time with his latest stuff on the, the NHS. I don't think he is unsackable, and it's a measure of Mrs May's weakness or timidity that so sackable a person for so sackable offences <laughs> should not be sacked. But she could. She could do it tomorrow. I suppose, yes, I mean, unsackable by Theresa May, because she just... The thing is, if she did it, wouldn't he instantly become the sort of colourful, charismatic talisman of, you know, Brexit criticism on the back bench? No, because he would have to return to the back benches, and he's not actually popular with his own colleagues. It's the Mm. public he's popular with, or at least they they find a grisly fascination uh, in Mm. him. Uh, And so back on the back benches, he wouldn't make much of a mark in in the House of Commons, not not at all. And although I suppose a lot of the Brexiteers would gather behind him as as the uh, as a martyr so to speak they would do it quite reluctantly he's he's not really trusted by his colleagues either hmm. so he doesn't have like a power base no that's the trouble he's, he's he hasn't cultivated a power base he, he hasn't bothered just to talk to people in the tea room and, and and when he was at the dispatch box as a shadow minister he wasn't particularly good so i think he he probably feels that where he is in the spotlight, with the eyes of the world on him, is the best place that he could be. And and I agree. I think that's what's motivating him. I don't think there is a cunning plan to number 10. He obviously wants to get there. But I, I think he just, when he doesn't get headlines, he feels starved of something. It's a, it's a sort of mental illness from which everybody who goes into politics, and I don't exclude myself, mm. suffers to some degree. Well, it's word because now we've been talking about his damn yeah, bridge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, Samuel exactly. Johnson. <laughs> also this week, the extraordinary bipartisan deal to give retrospective tax exemptions to millionaires who donated to the referendum campaigns, mostly several very rich leave donors. Among the lucky winners are ex-UKIP donor Aaron Banks, who gave £8.1 million to his own Leave.eu campaign group, and former Conservative Party co-chair Peter Cruddus, who gave nine hundred grand to vote leave. Under an amendment to the finance bill, backed by several leavers, but also Labour MPs and Remain supporters Alison McGovern and Caroline Flint, their donations will be backdated and exempted from tax. What? Sorry. I just might just leave that bit out. Um, Ros, what's the logic behind tax exemptions for political donations? Well, you already get tax exemptions for political donations to parties. Uh, But this didn't used to be the case for referendums. And this is the crux of the matter, basically, uh, because if you think about it, political parties get huge, uh, huge boost in their donations during election years. Why shouldn't they be uh, helped out during referendums? And therefore, why shouldn't referendum campaigns get the same privilege? After all, someone has to fund, you know, direct democracy. Someone has to fund the whole, the whole shebang. So if you're going to give uh, tax breaks for political parties, then it makes sense to extend that in a way to referendum. 
But having said that, there are a couple of difficult things here. One is that um, Open Britain and uh, some other Remainers are not opposing it because they have their own donors, not such big ones, but they have their own donors who will equally lose out um, and uh, if they don't get this tax exemption. And the uh, other reason it's, it's causing such a furore is because they're going to backdate it. You know, most laws are not generally retrospective. Mm. It's, not, it's not a general principle. But they want to backdate it. In order to make it completely fair, they also want to backdate it all the way back to the Indy Ref in Scotland and the AV referendum. Remember the AV referendum? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. It's who who it? doesn't? Yeah, we I mean, all remember we, we, where we, we were. I, I think this is not going to happen. It, it, like so many things in which too many fingers are in too many pies, uh, in the end there will be a tacit recognition that it's better just to to let let it let it drop. But I'm not sure that's right. I well, I the idea that we should. Uh, get some kind of public recognition if we fund political parties, political movements, ideas, crusades, is not entirely wrong to me. I, it, it is, it's not quite like giving money to charity, but I think people who back political parties, except in, in the hope, unless in the hope of uh, getting a peerage or something like that, I think they're to be commended. E- even people who back leave. I think the thing is, much as, as soon as I heard, as soon as it was Boris Johnson talking about the bridge, I was like... I don't like the bridge. <laughs> Similarly with this, it's like as soon as someone goes, it involves Aaron Banks getting a large amount of money. <laughs> I'm against it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm against it, but I'm not sure if that's a logical reaction <laughs> or just kind of a visceral recoil. The thing is, there's no limit on individual political donations in the UK. Um, and while you, if you're not in the habit of receiving those, you can stand back and say, well, there certainly should be. It's disgraceful. Just think how much influence a single individual can have. But then when you're a political party, actually, you don't want to pass any legislation <laughs> that says uh, we want a, a, a limit on individual donations because now and again, someone old dies off and, you know, they leave half a, half a million to the Green Party or something. You know, it, it's, it's very convenient. Mm. So that's why nothing changes. It's kind of ruining I mean, the, the Citizens United decision in America is kind of like ruining American politics or one of the many factors because it's kind of just unlimited spending, unlimited campaign spending. Britain, is it, it's just because it's smaller and the sums aren't as bad that there isn't the same kind of fear of campaign spending. Yeah, way. well, you're right, because the, the spending is pretty well under control, to be honest. I mean, yeah. you get any American, you bring them over here, and they think it's some kind of utopia in the way that we do our political campaigns. Not so much the content, but certainly the finance. Must so, look I mean, like it, a kind of boot sale to them. Right. <laughs> well, no, no, it does look a bit like cheap. A, it looks like a, a jam sale at the church. Well, but of course, you know, most, in my experience, the Americans I meet who are most sort of politically engaged tend to have recognised the damage that huge floods of money have done to the way that their politics is conducted. And I think that most of the time it looks quite good that it looks a little bit like a car boot sale. I have to say I find it very hard to get myself worked up one way or the other on this one. The only thing that I find remotely affecting is the idea of backdating it. And that does seem to me to go against the core principle of how you should be conducting these things. But in terms of whether they get the money or whether they don't, I don't really care one way or the other. There is a very good reason, another very good reason, why nothing happens and probably nothing will, which is that political parties have to be funded somehow and referendum campaigns have to be funded somehow. And if you're not going to accept donations, what, what alternative is there but to have state funding for political parties? And that means state funding for UKIP and uh, state funding for referendum campaigns. And the moment you go down that road, you're in very unpopular territory. People don't like giving politicians money, do they? No, no. <laughs> and of course, what you've seen happening now is because 
um, the Electoral Commission used to be able to monitor spending like this quite easily. But with social media and the large amounts that, as Aaron Banks knows, can be spent on social media, um, it's much, much more difficult to see where the money is coming from and to know how much is being spent. So, of course, there was one vote leave. Vote leave was the official leave campaign. But there was grassroots out spending money. Uh, there were there were other things going on. And so there was a lot of money coming in. And let's not pretend everyone is, you know, the, the, the Electoral Commission actually fined the Lib Dems 18, 18 grand after the referendum for not keeping proper, proper, mm. proper records of their spending. Oh. Everyone is in this. You know, <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. And it's frankly, the Electoral Commission does not really know what to do. I don't blame them in some ways. Talking of mess... <laughs> professional segue coming <laughs> following on from last week's Ross and Rachel routine starring current UKIP leader Henry Bolton and the world's premier racist music journalist Joe Marnie <laughs> a standoff between Bolton and the party's NEC UKIP's governing body passed a vote of no confidence in Bolton and a parade of senior colleagues have quit but Bolton insisted from the hotel he lives in hopefully with his extra large buffet plate <laughs> that he's staying on like his Game of Thrones namesake Ramsay he's not giving up without a fight and in that he had the backing of shy retiring woodland creature Nigel Farage who peeped out of his burrow to tour the TV and radio studio saying that although he can't stand Bolton the current UKIP leader could face down the hopeless amateurs running the party and do a Jeremy Corbyn by winning over the members Obviously, this is hilarious <laughs> in, in every detail. Um, but we had, when we had Lord Adonis on, he was saying, you know, the, the UKIP, that Nigel Farage, really, you know, still sort of exerts this enormous influence over the government. Hmm. I mean, does what happens with UKIP matter? No, I don't think so. But I do think the Farage still matters. Mm. So they definitely use him as this sort of bellwether of where that, that, that slice of opinion is from. And he represents a pretty big constituency, bigger than the one that votes for him, I think, which is really that idea of, the you know, it's a bit below 25% of the population who are implacably opposed to immigration, who are obsessed with immigration, that that is the primary sort of thing that they think about, that when they think about other issues in their lives, sometimes emotional, sometimes political, they're through the prism of immigration, of a changing country, of a changing community they don't have control over. And he represents it. You know, we have to say very, very well in terms of the manner in which he comes across as a natural speaker. He sounds like he's one of them. So he still functions. And then the, the really important stuff with all of this is always when in the background, Farage and Aaron Banks start talking about, well, we might set up another political party free of all this baggage. So what we know from Farage is he will take this stuff up to the furthest line that he thinks he can get away with. You remember Theresa May with the go home vans? He was smart enough then to say, well, actually, we don't, we don't approve of that. That's a little bit too Gestapo. He knows the right side of that line that he wants to be on. But then when it comes to Marine Le Pen running in France for the National Front, he will go out there and support her. Because to my mind, he goes over the line in terms of his personal opinions and is actually something genuinely quite bleak and dangerous going on there, translated into a tweed suit, British stands to reason, I'll have another pint of ale, please, Governor. That bit works, and I think that is the real danger. The UKIP stuff is just a sort of pantomime circus sideshow, really. It's Farage that matters. Well, did you read the piece by Alan Sked, who the founder of UKIP, uh, who founded it? It was called the Anti-Federalist League in '91. Um, and actually expelled Farage back in the 90s before stepping down. Wrote a Guardian piece saying it was a national joke. It now lacks all political credibility and provokes laughter rather than sympathy. It is high time, therefore, for it to disappear. I mean, will it? And will it be replaced by a kind of this thing that Farage was talking about in the Today programme of a kind of based on the Italy's five star movement and more because scared. It seems weird now, but in his UKIP, it wasn't about immigration. 
It was yeah. very wonkish and it was very Eurosceptic. He was, he was, he's an LSE professor. Yeah. He still is. Oh, right. It was terrible. Yeah, I'd, I'd done some, uh, I had a look at, into the archives at the LSE a few months ago and I looked at, uh, yeah, exciting times. Um, I, I, looked at, <laughs> I looked at some 97 election literature. I know, it's great, isn't it? Um, and um, it, was, it was fascinating because uh, there were two, obviously there was the referendum party there and the referendum party absolutely, um, basically won the game. It was putting out, get this, it was putting video cassettes through people's doors. I don't yeah, know if you remember this, Matthew. I do. Yeah. They were, it was really attractively packaged and it was very well run by James Goldsmith at the time and it was very clear about what it wanted. It wasn't, it was, it just wanted a referendum so it wasn't saying we necessarily want out, we want a referendum. Then we'll disband, then we'll be over. And it was a very slick operation. Basically Sked's UKIP got totally washed away by this. They were much more amateurish. They tended to be candidates just in the kind of... They tend to live in places like Crawley, home counties, that sort of thing, have a lot of spare time to, to campaign, but in their area. But referendum campaign was a national thing and they got many more votes than UKIP did and that was why Scared had to stand down and came under such pressure from Farage at the time. But he's, you know, he was never obsessed with immigration. He felt quite ill you know, when he saw what, what um, Farage ended up doing to his party as he saw it. I, I, I think that Britain needs or will have to have a pretty right-wing nationalistic party which is bristles about things like immigration and that's because there are an awful lot of people in Britain who hold those views and someone is going to have to represent them. And when UKIP was really doing quite well and threatening the Conservative Party, which I still belong to, I thought this is this is this is terrible. It was better when these right wing people stayed within the Conservative Party, where we can manage them, keep them under some kind of uh, leash. Then they went off into UKIP and caused the Conservative Party all kind of damage. Now UKIP seems to be collapsing. I, I'm now afraid that they're going to come back into the Conservative Party <laughs> because there's no sign that Tory whips or Theresa May can keep these people under a, a leash. So I, I, I like to see UKIP as like one of those poultices that they used to put onto superating sores, which would kind of drain off the, the sepsis. I think it was probably performing quite a good job doing that and if it, if, if it was to go they'll all come back to the Tories and I don't want that but Farage would love to launch his own new populist party he's been he? talking about it for years yeah. and Aaron Banks and they there'd be the money it. that's the weird mm. part they don't do it they keep on not doing it because you get mm. the impression that it would be this updated sort of you see lots of the really quite virulent nationalistic stuff that these guys put out online the kind of stuff that Aaron Banks shares is pretty you know, bleak identity politics stuff. Yeah. And yet they don't go down that road. They don't form it. They don't break free of all that you get back. You look at Five Star. I mean, Five Star in Italy, fascinating sort of depoliticized populist party. It has no actual political agenda at all. Whenever it takes over in any town, including Rome, it just <laughs> fucks the place into oblivion because they can't run anything. They don't have any conception of how they would operate. They don't really have any politics at all, just a series of pub instincts and, and you know, retorts. And yet the guys that they model themselves on, I don't think are like Five Star. I think they're much more like the kind of things that we see, you know, from Marine Le Pen, for instance, in France, which is a much more visceral, aggressive sense of hard right politics that they now think they can get away with in this new political climate. They talk about uh, Aaron Banks and others talk about it being a sort of right wing momentum, equivalent of mm. momentum. But the problem is momentum's supporters are mostly of an age and generation uh, that are good at online stuff. 
so many of UKIP's supporters are not really an age and generation mm. that was going to latch on to this, this on, online stuff. In fact, they're the very people who weren't. That's very interesting. I think that distinction is very interesting because you can tell when they're coming at you online if it's a UKIP guy or if it's someone from the alt-right. From the more Trumpy, they're much younger. Yeah. They deal <clears throat> exclusively in, in sarcasm in much the same way that the sort of momentum guys yeah. do. That sort of way of speaking is a much more youthful way of speaking. And I think it's that kind of audience that they want to tap into. And that stuff is worse than the UKIP stuff. The UKIP stuff is basically Little England and nastiness. Mm. This stuff is kind of proto-fascist, focus on hijabs, you know, focus on transsexual, this kind of stuff. Much, much uglier and I think much more dangerous. Yeah, I think things could, could get worse. That there, is a, there is a thing of... It was much... You know, when Nick Griffin was in charge of the BNP mm. as well, there's this idea of people who are kind of like unattractive... I don't mean physically, but just unattractive voters. Sort of and sco- physically. And physically also. <laughs> Holistic. I mean, I think he's hot. But, um, <laughs> I'm, not being, um, I'm not being malicious. But, you know, kind of unappealing characters who, um, you know, and kind of squabbling idiots and people that kind of, because that was that whole thing, you put him on question time and everyone goes, Jesus, look at this guy. But things could get, and UKIP, you know, is, is constantly sort of in the process of imploding. But there is that possibility of what if there were just people who were slicker and smarter with no. the same politics I, I, in, I think, in Britain? I think Farage realises that he would lose an awful lot of his um, older support if he embraced that kind of politics. People would be really put off by that by that sort yeah. of tone and they would be they would feel that the young people had taken over and they would just turn away and they might well go back to the Tories mm, they um, are which is yeah honestly <laughs> yeah. what Matthew fears uh, but I think that's what that was Farage uh, that, that is what he sees as well I mean he had that great one too in the referendum with um, with Farage and Boris Johnson and they both appealed to uh, different, slightly different constituencies. But to bring in the whole alt-right and the messiness and the ugliness of that, I actually think he wants to keep well away from that. Mm. And mm. it's probably his instincts are right to do so because, let's face it, Farage has decent instincts for politics, if nothing else. Um, before we move on, um, Ian, you want to talk about what David Davis has been up to this morning? <laughs> I don't know if want is the right word. Um, <laughs> It's your moral yeah. duty. <laughs> yeah, it's an editorial function. Um, so he's been in front of the Brexit committee. Um, and it's quite a spectacle, really. It, you sort of, it's, it's the sight of a man just running away from years of bullshit, of his own bullshit. So it starts with, you know, being asked questions by Hilary Benn, who's the chair of the committee on stuff that he used to say about supporting being in the customs union, saying, well, actually, I've changed my mind on that. Then goes on to the stuff he used to say during the referendum campaign of, you know, by the time that we're done, we'll have all of these bilateral trade deals that all be ready to go and we'll be OK. He's now saying, well, maybe that wasn't so true. However, the really interesting stuff comes on the character of the transition period and on the amount of time it would need for a deal. Because there, it's the post-referendum bullshit that's starting to catch up with him. And that's of a very different order and magnitude and political significance. Interestingly enough, it's Jacob Rees-Mogg, you're coming at it from exactly the other angle, that's causing the most damage there and is starting to show his teeth in the hardest way. And he's saying, well, look, you were saying that this was an implementation phase that we're going to have for two years after March 2019. And yet, there's no implementing going on. And, you know, there's no staggering. The, idea, the, the distinction that he saw in implementation between that phrase and the word transition is that you would gradually detach yourself from the various institutions. Now, that was never going to be the case, but that's what he could project onto it. I think it's the wrong analysis because, as a matter of fact, she was just using it as a word to placate her, her backbenchers that had no yeah. meaning beyond that fact. And yet the fact that someone like Rhys Mogg, who, as we mentioned last week, is in charge of the European Research Group, who in, in that capacity has an almost sort of internal whipping operation within the Conservative Party, has this attitude towards transition, raises the prospect of them opposing a deal from the other side. 
I don't think that'll happen. I think that when it comes down to it, they did on the table, they'll think, you know, this is the chance to get out. We can mess with it once we're out, but don't rock the boat about leaving. But it's very, very interesting to see that that's the struggle that she faces with Rees Mogg and with the DUP on that other side, and that that bit's starting to become undone. The implementation period is really just turning into extra time, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 That's, I, what, I, that's what Jacob, Jacob Rees Mogg is worried about. And, it, and even there's, there's still all this nonsense. I mean, you know, Davis today was sort of going, oh, well, we'll have the this, this substantial amount of it done by March 2019 mm-hmm. with the new trade deal. Of course, you absolutely will not have almost anything. If, you'll be lucky if you have five sides of A4 putting as an outline where we're going to get to. And that genuinely would be a job well done at the stage that we're at right now. And then you think, well, how's he going to do the rest of this stuff in time? And that's not just David Davis's madness. That's Brussels' madness as well, because Brussels is sticking to this two-year transition deadline to get us out in time for the next seven-year financial cycle. Now, that cannot be done. They at least have mostly kept their marbles, so they don't have the excuse of British ministers who've gone completely insane. So why they are saying this and creating a scenario where something that cannot be done, everyone is pretending can be done, is either troubling because they've started to lose their minds or become very cynical, or it's troubling because they have another idea. And the other idea, which I think is a very bleak thing, which I I desperately hope doesn't happen, is that they have so given up faith in British ministers and in the British state to come up with deliverable propositions for this, that they're going to get CETA, the Canadian deal, just like the Americans used to do with NAFTA once they'd signed it with smaller countries, sit down at the table, put CETA on the table and go, you can make 100 changes. But apart from that, basically, this is your lot. And that's the only way that could be done in time. Still wouldn't be ratified in time, but it could be done in time. And if they're sticking to the timetable for that reason, we should be very, very concerned indeed. There is one other reason why they might have stuck to a two-year timetable, and um, that is that uh, this being Europe, they can always change it later on. Just slip. They, well, they can, but it's much harder, of course, because there's the, the legal competence for it comes through, through article. Mm. This I'm about to get extremely tedious, and I can see our producer, as soon as I see legal competence, he's like, oh, God, make it stop. <laughs> Nevertheless, the legal competence comes through Article 50. That's what lets them do the transition. Now, if you want to extend it beyond that, you're past Article 50 and you need a new competence to come. So that would require some internal wrangling from the EU. The thing to watch out for is, do they put a mechanism to extend transition into the withdrawal agreement? Because if they do, this thing can go on for ages. If they don't, it's very, very likely that actually the cliff edge will be at sometime in 2020. Today's episode of Romaniacs is brought to you by HelloFresh, makers of delicious recipe kits with fresh ingredients all delivered right to your door. Romaniacs listeners can get 50% off their first two HelloFresh boxes by using the promo code Remain. It's hard enough keeping on top of everything in politics without remembering to get the dinner in as well. HelloFresh means no more, oh no, what are we having for dinner, misery, and no more boring evening meals either. Their brilliant recipe boxes contain inspiring new dinner ideas every week, plus all the ingredients you need to make them. Pre-portions are cooking is quick and easy. There are step-by-step recipe cards to make cooking a great dinner hassle-free, whether you're an expert in the kitchen, a busy parent, or an enthusiastic novice. I'm a metropolitan vegetarian, but what about our carnivorous producer, Andrew? Well, I've uh, had a go at the very nice beef kofta curry and sag aloo and the creamy linguine with serrano ham and prawns, which is very, very tasty indeed. This week, I've really enjoyed the spiced winter stew with roast vegetables and bulgur wheat and the Indian spiced aubergine with golden basmati and nigella yoghurt. HelloFresh offers a choice of meat, vegetarian, dairy-free and gluten-free options and delivery on a day to suit you. Get 50% off your first two boxes with the promo code REMAIN and start spending less time planning meals and more time enjoying them. Just go to hellofresh.co.uk and use the promo code REMAIN. As you've heard, this week we're joined by one of our favourite Remainers, Matthew Paris, who was once a Conservative MP, but now watches his party with growing incredulity from the pages of The Times and The Spectator. 
Matthew, you've always been one of the sort of calmer, more moderate Tories, and, and their brand has been, you know, responsibility and economic competence and, and don't rock the boat, that sort of small-c conservatism. Mm. Do, you, do you even sort of recognise what, what's happening there? Were these, were these uh, sort of trends that are now dominant... Were they things that you noticed back oh, when you yes. in the Commons? No, no, they were always there. It's a, it's a significant, substantial minority of the Conservative Party have always been a bit crazy about Europe. It's just something flicks in their brains and their eyes begin to swivel and they just go mad. <laughs> they, they, they were always like that. But they tended to be rather older and they tended to be kept under control. They nearly kind of burst out of the the box under John Major, but he just managed to get Maastricht through despite them. We thought that was it. We, we thought that, that that was like peak Euroscepticism, but we've discovered it isn't. But it's an old phenomenon. And who were the kind of, who were the old school, who were the kind of like paleo Eurosceptics? Oh, Bill Cash, John Redwood, all that, all that crowd. Estimable people in lots of ways. I mean, they stuck to their guns, they did their homework, mm-hmm. and they just wouldn't give in. So we Romaniacs, or um, the resistance, as I like to call it, need, need to uh, f- take their example. Because were they very? I remember reading a kind of long piece about Daniel Hannan back when people thought that well, he yes, was he's another one. That he was clever, <laughs> which is uh, something he's trying to dispel uh, on Twitter every day at the moment. Um, but there was something about how they just played the long game and they managed to kind of, you know, get the party and the press all pointing in this direction. Well, I, that's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is that they had a, a, a real belief. Uh, it, it, it was a faith. It's much more akin to a religion than than to anything else I could could mention. And if you have a real belief, you you you're prepared to put up with being in a minority for a while because you believe that the the true light will shine through in the end. Well, I suppose it's the same thing of you know why why Corbyn now? Yes, it's just like somebody and his inner circle yeah. who just had the patience to hold to that unpopular path. Yeah, not necessarily playing a game of any kind, long or short, but just Mm. holding to their beliefs. This is what makes it so difficult for us on the Remain side. Uh, We we, we are, for the most part, not kind of foaming at the mouth um, fans of everything the European Union does or says. And we, we can't say that we just absolutely adore the European Union. It's our future. It's, it's our vision. It's, it's the dream for Britain in the 21st century. We, we think it's a pretty mixed organisation which makes lots of mistakes. But we think that on the whole, it's better to stay in it. Well, that's not the kind of thing to rally the crowds. Yes. We don't have that fiery intensity. <laughs> no, no. Has, has something changed in the way that the Conservative Party debates this stuff? I mean, obviously the Euroscepticism is old, but there's a sort of, you know, sort of almost Maoist burn everything down, let's start again, sort of revolutionary fever to, to the place now that yes. doesn't seem... It, doesn't, it didn't feel that like it was that way before. Well, I could kind of sum up what I said rather t- too, uh, too much length, which is that basically the, the lunatics were always in the asylum, but the lunatics have taken over the asylum now. Hmm. That, that explains the, the change. But what does that mean for, like you said, you're, you're still a member of the Conservative Party. Um, it took them a long time after 1997 to, uh, to dispel this image of themselves, as, as Theresa May put it, as the nasty party, um, and make itself more appealing to, for example, uh, ethnic minority voters, younger voters. Um, still, that wasn't obviously their core support, but they, they yeah. sort of broadened their appeal. Um, and now it just seems to be charging back under Theresa May's sort of, you know, feeble leadership into the nasty party direction. Um, is, what does this sort of mean for them 
for, for the Tories going forward. It's, it's hard to imagine. Right? It, it does. means okay. extinction. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot we could criticise David Cameron for, but that, that project to, to modernise the Conservative Party, I, th- I thought was a really great idea. And he was, it was a work in progress. I don't think he, he had detoxified the party, but he'd done quite a lot of work towards it, and it was going well. Uh, even he seemed to lose faith in it at a certain point. Uh, th- th- there's no way the Conservative Party has a future in this century if, if we stick to the sh- shrinking core of zealots uh, to whom we now seem to be in hock. I mean, so what, what's... I mean, is there a future for that, um, I suppose, the... The Tory moderates. We've seen what happened. What's happened in America with the Republican Party, where basically it just seemed the moderates were just crushed, um, and it just the party went wildly to the right. Now there are still a lot of fairly reasonable, well, a number, uh, and they were all on the cover of the Telegraph, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> of of these sort of fairly reasonable, not just on the issue of uh, Brexit, but also on on various other policies. These were kind of the conservatives that 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 um, I have a, have a good word for. Um, I mean, do they? Are they? Do you think that there can be a, a fight back, a pendulum swing, or are they just going to be kind of, again, sort of s- squeezed out? There is a fight back going on. It, 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 it's fairly quiet, and I think there's some disagreement amongst uh, Remainers uh, as to whether we shouldn't let the uh, the Brexiteers lead with their chins and wait for them to trip over, or whether we should be going in now. But there's a very strong spirit amongst uh, at least a third to a half of the Conservative Party that doesn't like what's happening at all. And that they exist even amongst supporters out in the country. About a third of our supporters voted Remain and probably still think that the whole Leave thing was a bit of a mistake. So, so all is not lost. That's why I stay on. <laughs> Have you ever considered leaving the party? Oh, yes. I mean, but, you know, just as people consider leaving their husbands or wives and, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then don't. <laughs> no, not, not Never seriously. seriously. No, no. It would get me a few good columns, but then what, what would I write about after that? <laughs> yeah, because there was a huge, well, there was a little cottage industry in why I'm leaving Labour. Yes. You know, yeah. the last two years. Yeah, but it's rather keeping warm by burning your box of matches, really. <laughs> you can't, you, why I left Labour two years after you've left isn't a very interesting column. Well, there was another cottage industry, of course, in why I called Jeremy Corbyn wrong <laughs> after the election <laughs> when everyone recanted yes. Yes. as if they were in trials or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think explains the Corbyn stuff, actually, with uh, I mean, the, the single market, the Brexit stuff? I mean, what's, your, what's your take on all that? Is he a true believer? Is he just waiting until he's going to make his move? Or? Well, I, I'm, I'm sure that Jeremy Corbyn is basically opposed to the European Union because he thinks it's a capitalist club, and, and to some extent it, it, it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it is quite possible that reality and, and the prospect of actually winning an election are causing him to subordinate his, what you might call his ideological side, and that's the battle going on within the Labour Party. I don't know who's going to win it. They've become incredibly pragmatic, considering the yeah. criticism mm. of Corbyn's Labour was always that it was just sort of, you know, a perpetual, it was doomed to be a perpetual opposition party and it was just sort of idealistic. And now it's playing the most incredible sort of triangulation games. It's, it's sort of ruthlessly pragmatic in terms of how to play this issue. But there's the joyful spectacle of Corbynistas online sort of telling Blairites, well, of course, you couldn't possibly do that and say that he's against Brexit now because he'd lose all the support. You've got to be more sensible than that. And they're like, wow, yeah. the tides have really turned. It's quite complicated. It's a real mm. tangle. Mm. I, mm. T- to what extent Jeremy Corbyn actually has a plan and is, is mapping all this out or to what extent he's just being buffeted by 
the last person that he he spoke to. I I, I don't know. I, I I think we because he has been so unexpectedly successful, we perhaps do slightly overestimate him as a great uh, intellect or strategist. He might not be. He might just have got very lucky. Hmm. I think you're right. I think he has got very lucky, and I um, don't think he has the personal drive to do it by himself, and that's why he's so pushed by other people, whether it's the people around him or uh, you know the wider his wider support. But given that it's over eighty percent of Labour Party supporters now, isn't it, who 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 want who want to stay in the single mm. market, he'll have to make that switch mm. if he does get into power, and I think he probably will before. My feeling, my hunch is that Labour will will win the next general election, whenever that is. So I think he will then reverse reverse ferret just just in order to ensure that there is an absolute economic catastrophe that he has to preside over, as well as reversing austerity and all the other stuff he has to do. But um, but yeah, but but Matthew, one of the things I'm wondering is. You know, we spend a lot of time saying, as Remain is saying, we told you so. You, I think, less so, but generally we do. It has that all we've got left now? Do you think? I think we would be unwise if we take refuge in I told you so because I don't think that events, the economy or anything else are going to adjudicate as clearly as we hope as to who was right and who was wrong. Uh, We talk about a cliff's edge but it might not be a cliff's edge. It might just be a very gentle downward slope indeed with the economy still expanding a bit but not as fast as other people. I I would guess that the effects of Brexit, if it happens, are going to be chronic rather than uh, the, the, rather than acute. And so I told you so is a rather too theatrical. Well, there's a kind of fantasy that there's almost like there's a box that when it's open, there's either going to be a kind of gold yeah. nugget or a turd. Yes. And it will just be decided like, <laughs> yeah. it's a turd, leave or wrong. <laughs> and of course, it's not like that. There's not yeah. this kind of Life moment like of revelation, is there? <laughs> But can, is it, can it be stopped incrementally? I mean, you, you've suggested recently that hard Brexiteers are gradually losing, you know, more and more of their red lines, more and more yeah. of their battles over the over the divorce bill, over the transition period, that kind of thing. But there is the danger, isn't there, that we just go too far, and in the end, everyone says, "Right, it's inevitable now. We haven't got we haven't got a choice. We've got to go." Is that is that the real worry? I I think it would be the worry that. Uh, Certain elements in the Conservative Party would say this has gone too far. We'd rather just have a Brexit on no terms at all. But there is nothing like a majority in the House of Commons. And I'm not sure there's even a majority in the Conservative Party for that and and, and nor amongst the public. So I I think the pressures of public opinion and party opinion would, would, would push the other way. My strategy is that we all push as hard as we can. I shouldn't be revealing this, really, towards the softest possible Brexit. And uh, and, and we all hope that uh, in prospect we get the softest possible Brexit. And then everybody looks at that and says, how is this better than actually just staying in the European Union? But it's a two-stage thing. So for the moment, we all just have to argue for a soft Brexit, although we know that the case for a soft Brexit is fatally flawed. Yeah. And you write for um, The Times, which has a lovely paywall, so you get sort of protected from the kind of the, the, the full-on barbarian experience in the comment threads. <laughs> Spectator is more open, and presumably some of your opinions, particularly on this issue, aren't going to go down so well with, with a large part of their readership. What do you... I mean, I don't know if you even, even sort of read these comments, but what do you make of um, the sort of state of discourse now? Is it... Because it because it seems so much more sort of heated and more venomous all the time. 
Is it has it has it got much worse for you over your kind of writing career? I do read this this stuff. I do always read the Times online comments because there's a good proportion of perfectly sensible people there on both sides of the argument. That the Spectator. They, they they seem to attract the very worst kind of commenters, and I'm not sure that those are typical of the readership of the Spectator. I think we make make a great mistake if we mistake the virtual reality of of, of Twitter, social media, online comment. If we mistake that for the state of the nation and what people actually think, I I, I don't know what people actually think. I suspect they're really bored with it all by now. But do you, do you sort of have faith then that once you get past this kind of top layer, it's probably a very small percentage of just kind of, you know, rage and sarcastic memes and trolling, that you will actually find still, as, as it was 20 years ago, a large majority are quite, who are interested, are able to kind of uh, converse civilly with well, people they disagree with. Well, one has to believe that or else suicide is the only <laughs> option, I think. I'm, I'm never tall bothered by the trolling sort of stuff. I, I get all sorts of abuse. I notice the Times Online moderator quite quickly removes that stuff. It doesn't bother me in the least. It totally water off a duck's back. I actually prefer abusive responses because you don't have to read them. You just read the first two sentences, see that it's abusive and and, and look on to the next one. <laughs> I, what I hate is constructive criticism of any kind. Which you, <laughs> you really have to. Then you have to think about yes, it yes, and acknowledge yes. points. Maybe they've got a point. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if I'm called a superating, superating little faggot online, I don't think, oh, maybe they've got a point. I, I just <laughs> smile and, and move on to the next comment. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking. Even that is in a the much better class of troll than I get. <laughs> Just the word super rating is very impressive well, in troll levels. Like. Yeah. Spectator readers. Yeah. <laughs> good vocabulary. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. Finally, it's the brief return of Romaniac's book club. In Europe, by the Dutch journalist Hiet Mark, is a fascinating travelogue that hangs the entire history of Europe on a single journey round the continent in late 1999. It's full of detail and humour, and it'll open your understanding of the place we've decided to leave, like few other books. And this week, it's been Book of the Week on Radio 4. Each of the five 50-minute episodes is now up on iPlayer. We've managed to hear uh, three of them. Ros, what did you make of this? There was a lot about Russia. I was quite surprised by how big a presence Russia was in this narrative. He spends, uh, on, on Tuesday's uh, episode, he was spending some time uh, following um, uh, Lenin's footsteps, I think, and, and he was uh, uh, going into a lot of detail as well about Finland and talking to people in Finland about why Finland joined the EU. So, obviously, you know, matter of some interest to us Romaniacs. And it turns out it seems mostly because they were afraid of Russia. And, you know, the Finns, the Finns I know, because I know a few Finns, not that many, but a few. The Finns I know. How many do you need? <laughs> enough. You got enough. You can never saying. have too many. They are lovely people, um, and um, they they are really. Russia comes up a lot as a presence right on their border because we don't really appreciate this in Britain because Russia is is quite a long way away. But Russia has invaded them. If you ask a Finn about history, they will tell you all about the battles they fought, and they will include the battles that they fought with the British. And you will look at them and say, "We fought you," because I have no idea we fought. <laughs> The Finns that we fought everyone, I think, but we, yeah, but we did, um, and and they're very conscious of their vulnerability sitting there on the edge of Europe, um, a vulnerability to Russia, and of course, this is only going to get more acute 
um, now that now that Putin is here, where he he wasn't at the time when Khmak uh, was was doing this broadcast, it, it must feel even more uh, scary to be in that place. And that was what really struck me. It's funny because they're so good at killing Russians, aren't they? Last time they tried to invade, it was all that thing of you use the skis and the submachine guns and the grenades and the knives, and they're sort of like the James Bond warfare experts of killing Russians. I'm quite surprised that they're still concerned about it. I thought that they're terribly good at it. I tried to listen to this thing, and I just... Sorry about this, Matthew. I don't mean... I really like Great Lives, but it was all just so Radio 4. It was <laughs> it, was, it was like, you know, and it was a spring day when the bike wheel started to move as I went over Europe and decided to talk to someone about that, and I was thinking, oh, fucking hell, I can't. You don't it's get that so... on Great Lives. Great Lives just get straight to... <laughs> <laughs> it's much more robust. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was too. It was too much. So I kept on trying to pay attention, mm. but then I just kept on sort of drifting off. Really, Matthew here, Mark is very optimistic about Europe's future back in 1999. Do we think his optimism is justified at this stage? The, the conclusion that Europe has sort of got over the worst and had a bit of a shock and Brexit and all that, but Europe's kind of rediscovering its confidence. As a little bit hasty, I, I think Europe has, mm. the EU has all sorts of problems ahead. Greece still isn't solved. The uh, Macron's aim for greater centralisation still still hasn't been achieved and may meet huge resistance. So I, 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 would, I would enter a not sure as to how uphill or downhill the future is for the EU at the moment, but here yeah, seems to think that it's uphill. I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, like if you even look financially, I mean, mm. Italy is not a done deal yet. And yeah. if Italy falls down, mm. it's very hard to see how that can be rearranged in any way in the way that, say, Greece could, could have been done. And then you look at stuff like, you know, look at what happened after the migrant crisis with Schengen. I mean, th- that system was based on mutual recognition, the idea that basically our country will work like your country does because we're all kind of pretty much the same. And that goes for trade, but it also goes for stuff like justice and mm. policing. And what happened in Schengen after the migrant crisis was that we sort of saw actually that's not how people feel and they don't really feel that what goes in your country necessarily goes on in mine when it comes to mm. policing of borders and that highlighted some divisions that are still there even though the public front of the EU yeah has, has remained impressively unified and, and upbeat and optimistic since Brexit. Mm. Well I thought that this this uh, book sort of chimed with a lot of this research I'm doing about the about the 1930s he talks about the Dreyfus affair, which is in a big chapter in Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. So she's sort of tracing back these sort of patterns of thought and obviously anti-Semitism to that. And um, it's good for kind of reminding you just kind of what, um, I mean, just how messy and violent European history Hmm. is. And also this kind of utopianism. They mentioned like Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, which is like, a you know, the original classic utopian novel real kind of like completely impractical starry-eyed and that that's mentioned right at the beginning of the book and this kind of um and it was really touching the faith that people had in the european union particularly after you know obviously after world war ii where it's just like everything had gone so appallingly wrong and and i think sometimes when you just look at it in practical terms what you were saying about kind of we we lack the sort of intense passion Mm. for europe that others have against it and I think it's good to be reminded of of that sort of idealistic spirit. And it wasn't just like, let's set up a very pragmatic free trade area. It was, mm. let's avoid concentration camps, you know, and with war and division. All that. So it was kind of like that long game. I mean, it is a very long. I mean, when he goes, it's 1917, and you're like, is it? Is it? <laughs> are we? Are you really going? Are we really starting there? Sense, right, yeah. um, 
but but it does seem like a sort of valuable reminder that there's there's just so much history tied up into this project, which by the time I sort of came of age seemed quite boring. I'm doing European mm. politics in A level, and that was the most boring bit. Just it was just I could not understand. I can barely understand it now. Ian, I don't know what you're talking about, but you, but you know what I mean. And yet, of course, it was forged in the kind of wake mm. of violence with with all of these kind of high ideals, which uh, I was glad to be reminded of. And that memory of the war, I think, explains so much about the difference in the emotional tenor of the way that we think about things. Because when death comes from above, as it did for us, or when you go abroad to face it, that is a different historical memory to what happens when sort of Nazism or totalitarianism takes root in your community when it's about like a neighbour's betrayal or a concentration camp on your doorstep that is a fundamentally different historical memory so you're right when we talk about it in Britain even now even Remainers will talk primarily in a pretty transactional kind of way about the single market and actually the truth is it's pretty hard to get excited about markets and especially about something like the single market, even though the ideas there are historic and quite extraordinary, unprecedented in human history. I think quite inspiring. But when we frame it in that transactional way, it doesn't have the same time. And I think the explanation for that is in our historical memory. But it is one of the reasons why the four freedoms um, are so important to the EU, including the freedom of movement, because the more you move around and the more you sell things to people in neighbouring countries, the less likely you are to go to war with them. Not always, but providing you have a, Mm. a, a structure and a series of laws that govern those transactions and govern those movements, which is what the EU provides, that makes it, that was always the aim of the EU, that it would make it less likely that we all started killing each other again. And this, I think, uh, it's, if, if the EU does hold together, it may well be because of the threat of Russia, particularly now that NATO, with Trump in charge, is mm. feels like less of a comfort blanket to, to Britain. Um, it may mm. well be that that's what hold it, holds it together. That said, you know, I thought it was this week it was interesting to listen to Macron when he mentioned the possibility of Frexit. I don't know what Frexit ought to be, you know, France sortir. But Frexit. <laughs> um, that he actually said, you know, Frexit was a real possibility, and it was because there are plenty of people who would have used a referendum vote in France in just the same way as people use the referendum vote here as a protest vote. And France could easily have gone the same way. And that to me was quite interesting because it also showed that we're not I, I don't think our, pro- our fears and problems are unique in Europe. I think the kind of fears that a globalising world has set up are common, to, are, are, are common to many parts of Europe and certainly common to France and England. And the idea that we are this exceptional little island that has to live on, you know, cannot really cooperate closely with the rest of Europe because we are fundamentally different, I think that gives the lie to that idea. Hmm. Well, so that's In Europe by Hitmark, Radio 4's Book of the Week, now on iPlayer, but you're probably better off with the full thing in paperback. And that's the end of our show for this week. Many thanks to Matthew Paris for joining us. What are you up to next, Matthew, apart from trying to find your column for this week? <laughs> I'm well, I'm, we're off to uh, northern Kenya quite soon. I've always wanted to go to Lake Turkana. Apparently it's seething with crocodiles. <laughs> is, this, <laughs> is, is, is this a holiday or are you, are you doing a some crocodile writing. Oh, no, <laughs> the glory of my job is that um, holidays turn into writing opportunities too. Who could be luckier? Well, that's very true. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, have a good time. Thanks as ever to Ros Taylor and Ian Dunt. 
Signing us off this week in the traditional Europhone style, it's one of our previous guests, Alexandreou, with a bit of Greek for you. And now, please enjoy our theme tune, Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop, available now on all download stores and Spotify, while we give you the traditional roll call of Patreon supporters. Uh, it's thanks from me to Emily Butler, Chris Kendall, Liz Price, Bernard Harbour and Richard Latham. Hello and thank you to James Harvey, Mark Woodham, Nick Hill, yes, Nick Hill, Laureline VK, great name, and Sam Housen. And thanks for me to Paul Holmes, Ilona Ali, Mark Roper, Joanna Cochran and David Trott. See you next week. Thank you.